The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. today from verse 27 through 36 of Luke chapter 6, in the midst of, of what we would call the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to the words of Jesus. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Listen to this quote that I read to you. Waking from a dream, I suddenly realized I was in the death house of the Japanese prisoner of war camp in Thailand. I was a British prisoner of war lying among dead bodies in mud that was awash with blood and excrement and discarded bandages. I eagerly awaited the bodies of fellow soldiers adjacent to me to be carried out so I might have some room to stretch out my six-foot, three-inch frame. Those words come from a former British soldier, a man who was part of the Scottish Highlanders Regiment, Captain Ernest Gordon. He wrote a book called To End All War. Some of you could possibly know the movie that was developed from that book not so long ago. Ernest Gordon told about horrific experiences he had in World War II when he was just a captain in his early 20s. He was a prisoner at the same brutal Japanese camp, prisoner camp, that was made famous in another movie, the movie Bridge on the River Kwai, where Allied prisoners were brought and worked very hard to build a railway through Thailand and Burma for the Japanese army to use in just impossible conditions. It is estimated that as many as 13,000 Allied prisoners died in that camp 
they worked on construction until they dropped and their bodies were simply discarded in the jungle. They were beaten to death, tortured, bayoneted, drowned, shot, and beheaded with swords. And those who lived were starved on a daily basis and suffered from every kind of tropical disease that you could possibly imagine. If ever men had good reasons, you would say, to hate their enemies, bitterly hate them, those men did. Amazingly, among them was one man, not a a minister, not a chaplain, but he was a Christian. His name was Dusty Miller. Miller somehow had a Bible with him that he was allowed to keep, and he began going among the dying men, his comrades, and reading the Scripture to them and praying the best he knew how. To his amazement, other men began to listen and get quiet when they heard the Bible being read and Dusty praying. And then a core group that included Ernest Gordon gathered around Miller and said, would you teach us what you know about the Bible? We know you're not a minister. Maybe you're not trained, but would you teach us what you know? And so there arose in that terrible circumstance what we call a Bible study group that very quickly had some men giving their hearts to Christ and seeing that even in that living hell where they were, that there was a reason to look for a future and a purpose in life and possibly even to discover not only forgiveness of their sins, but forgiveness toward their captors. I'm going to say more about this later on. Here in Luke chapter 6, writing just before the text that I read, we find Jesus calling his 12 disciples in, in Luke's account. That's earlier in verses 12, 13 through 16 or so, where it says he designated 12 of them to be apostles. It tells the names of those. And, and then he goes into this uh, giving of what we know elsewhere as the Sermon on the Mount, which is really an address to disciples for how a disciple is to live. The Sermon on the Mount, by the way, is, is never uh, contrary to what many people think. It's not a book of ethics for the world at large. It's how a disciple lives distinctively from the world. And included in that is, is the warning that they're going to be rejected, they're going to be hated, Uh, They're going to have hard times. They're going to suffer. Verse 26, right before what I read, says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that's how their fathers treated the false prophets. In other words, expect rejection. And that would seem to me to put in context the passage that I did read to tell us how to respond to that rejection. If you're going to be a rejected, persecuted minority in the midst of the world, Here's how you respond to that. Here's how you treat enemies in a remarkable way. And you think, well, do I have enemies? Maybe nobody immediately comes to mind who you'd call your enemy, or maybe someone does right away. We have public enemies who we share. Certainly we would think that greedy people manipulating the world economy certain heads of banks and investment houses and so on. In the last recession, there were many things going on out of greed and and sin and complicity that caused all of us great harm and caused the whole world great harm. And we would say there were enemies 
against the public good there. If you would look at unscrupulous politicians who introduce ungodly legislation and defend it, things that harm all of us, we would say, well, there's a public enemy. A drunk driver who's out there under control and kills somebody. A terrorist. You can come up with people who are enemies of us publicly, of all of us. But most of the enemies we worry about are the personal ones, aren't they? Perhaps the boss, the manager at your company, who regularly uses every means he can to demean female employees. Perhaps the spiteful co-worker who finds ways to downgrade your work and promote his own ahead of you. An angry neighbor that somehow has a feud in his mind against you and you can't even figure out exactly what it is he's upset about. A deceitful spouse, a cheating spouse. Lots of kinds of enemies can be out there. A bully in the middle school. Our response to such people usually is to push back. Most Christians aren't aggressors. Hopefully, you don't see it as your response to hate that person in kind, to say, I can dish it out as good as I can take it. You usually just pull back and say, I'm going to just steer around that person and and do everything I can to avoid him, and I think that'll be the way of peace. Well, the interesting thing is that Jesus Christ taught us another response, one that's completely unnatural and therefore godlike. It involves loving people who abuse you, acting toward them in the way that God did toward us in Christ, loving people whom you don't even necessarily have to like. And so we come to the first point made from Luke six twenty-seven to 31, where we encounter what I could call the hardest of all Jesus' commands. At least they sound that way. If we just took the first two verses, I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And then he goes on to the famous turning the other cheek, which, by the way, is probably not about somebody slugging you. A slap in the face, as Jesus talked about it, was most likely the insult that you receive. It didn't even have to be physical. But when you're insulted, he said, let it go. Let him insult you again. And we say, that's not the way of the world. You know, the way of the world, even in the way we drive, is, look what that guy did to me. I'm going to do the same thing. And we read in this passage the famous golden rule, verse 31, do to others as you would have them do to you. That isn't even a natural human response, is it? It's completely unnatural. You know, ours is more do against the person what he did against you. Not be considerate of him the way you would want him to be considerate. One commentator chose to say that following the golden rule for sinners like we are is about as natural as a hungry lion turning up his nose at a fresh-killed deer and choosing to have a salad for his lunch instead. It just won't happen. There's nothing natural about these things that Jesus asks. They're, they're directly contrary to our human nature. Now, some people want to say, well, wait a minute. Let me try to think of the, the uh, exception here. Aren't there times when 
we as Christians have to fly the flag of God's righteous wrath against evil things, and, and we have to be vehement in causes because people are out there assaulting heaven and assaulting the Word of God and, and criticizing and laughing at God and promoting evil and apostasy and idolatry. Don't we have to be upset about that sometimes? Yes, indeed. And you see, here's where we get into an interesting paradox. God does want us to be angry about the things that make him angry, the causes where he says, this is not of me, this does me no glory. And yet over and over and over, the Scripture has the Lord say many times, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Here's what God is doing with us. He's saying, yes, share in my holy wrath at things that are against my kingdom. But I have not appointed you to be the individual administrators of my judicial wrath towards individuals that are doing these things. Now, what does that mean? That means we defend the cause of God. We're upset about things he's upset about. We're praying when we, when we see unrighteousness and injustice, and we're trying to work against it, even in the political realm. But we are not the Lord's hired guns to blast individuals to pieces, no matter how heinous the sins of those individuals might be. Now, let me say, I really believe that as evangelical Christians are more and more politically active these days, political action is a great thing. By all means, do it. Here's a fine line that we forget to walk. Because we go out into the public realm, into the civil square, and And we see leaders, we see senators, we see presidents, we see all kinds of people, judges, doing and promoting things that to us are awful. Abortion. We say, that's absolutely terrible. How can they do that? It's so bad that they're simply promoting these things and allowing the unborn to be killed. And in our vehemence against that, evil, What we end up doing is consigning every individual that promotes that or that signs the bill or promotes and supports the action and say, that is a person beyond hope or beyond help. You see, there's the fine line that we're not allowed to miss. I can greatly disrespect the actions of the President of the United States, and yet my Lord and Scripture implores me to pray for him because he's been put in authority over me. As we head more and more into political thinking and and interaction in these next couple years of presidential election, I urge you to think about that. I urge you to be careful. You may, I'm not only our president, but anybody else in the local realm or anywhere else say, that person is a vehicle of promoting what is wrong before God. Nevertheless, The Lord says, I'm merciful towards those who are caught in their ignorance and their sin. And the call of Christ in this text is a difficult thing when it asks us to hate evil while simultaneously learning that there's such a thing as love to the evildoer. And that isn't just a cliche. You know, we hear it all the time. Hate the sin, love the sinner. It's not a cliche. It's a very difficult part of our calling. It's a huge task. And if it was simply viewed as a human duty done in human strength alone, it would actually be absurd. But it's not absurd. Because secondly, having told you that's the hardest of all Jesus' commands, I want to tell you the key 
to showing and learning this unnatural love for enemies begins at the cross of Christ. It begins and is sponsored and motivated by a source other than our natural instincts. Go for the foundation if you want to our word of assurance we heard earlier in the service this morning, 1 John 4, verse 10. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Where do we get a definition of love? Not from the way we interact naturally with people, even at our best. We get it from God's interaction of loving us. Romans 5 has more to say. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love in this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us in an active, planned, deliberate way when we were rebels, when we were pushing away with both hands all that he was offering us, when we were like a little child in a, in a tantrum, you know, if you've ever been a parent and, and have had a child just go out of control in a raging tantrum and you could hardly even hold on to them because their body's just vibrating with anger and they're kicking and they're screaming. That's what we were like. In fact, Romans 5, uh, 6 says, while we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for powerless people who were anti-God, us. We were God's enemies when he planned the cross. We were born that way. And you see, a Christian is a person who has seen themselves that way and says, yes, that was me. I was like that. And God reached out to me with Jesus Christ offering himself, going to the cross for me, dying in my place while I was struggling against him. How wonderfully I've been loved by God. I'm sure you've heard preachers tell you numerous times before about the different words for love in the Bible. They're instructive. Let me just remind you for a minute. There's, there's the word eros for romantic love, the love that a man and a woman Love one another, come together as husband and wife. A romantic attraction, that chemistry that we can never quite explain. Why did I choose this one as as my husband, as my wife? What drew me? Well, something positive about each other pulled you together. You united together because one met a need in the other, and companionship and all the different things that are involved in romance, eros love was operating. There's that other kind of love at a little bit different level called philios love, Philadelphia love, the friendship. Well, you have good friends in this world. It's not a romance necessarily, but they're friends. They're people you're drawn to, people who support you and help you and care for you, do positive things. Again, you've got very positive feelings towards these people. In other words, both the eros love and the philio love involve feeling, lots of positive feeling. Well, you probably knew that the New Testament had to invent a whole new word for the kind of love Jesus is calling us to here and the love that he showed at the cross. It's agape. Love that actually is contrary to feeling and even seems contrary to logic. It doesn't make any sense. Loving a person who's not doing one thing to make me feel good or build me up or stroke me, but in fact is poking a sharp stick in my eye. God says, love that person because that's how I loved you. The heart of God is not motivated to love sinners because we could do something for him. He didn't love me because he said, boy, you know, 
centuries ago, when before time was, I certainly want to be sure I add Michael, Michael Rogers to my kingdom because, wow, what a good guy he is. How he's going to enhance the kingdom of God if I love him. How ridiculous. I can add nothing to God. I have no merit. I have no worth. There's no reason for him to love me. But despite all reason, despite the fact that I was born indifferent to him and, in fact, opposed to him, he loved me. He didn't even have to like me. But he loved me. And Christian, for us, it's as if the Niagara Falls of the grace and mercy of God in Christ has cascaded over us and left us soaking wet. And if you walk around soaking wet long enough, the people who get near you, those you like and those you don't, are going to get wet by rubbing up against you. I saw a great big dog this week. You know, it's been so rainy, so wet, water's pouring out of the heavens. I saw a big German shepherd on the street, and he was out in the rain walking around by himself and uh, just getting soaked. I was in my car and noticed him, and he stopped, and you know what he did. He shook his whole body, and water flew out in all directions. Anybody that had been within 10 feet, if they weren't getting wet from the sky, would have gotten wet from the dog. Well, you know, it may not be a very glamorous comparison to compare a Christian to the German shepherd shaking himself off, but isn't it kind of the same? If we get drenched in the love of God, in Christ, the love that has no reasonable explanation to it, we're going to be wet enough that we shake ourselves off and others are going to get wet in that love that God has given us. How, thirdly, do we practically act upon this? He gives us a very good handle for it here. Jesus speaks, and, and he says, I'm not just talking in vague generalities. I'm going to give you something to, to get a hold of this with. And remember, it's not because you feel good about people. It's not feeling-based. C.S. Lewis commented, saying, Do not waste your time wondering whether you will feel love for that crotchety work associate or your most critical opponent, you never will. If you're waiting to feel it, stop waiting. Lewis said, start acting today as though you did feel it, and instead of being a hypocrite by that action, you will discover a great secret. Soon, out of your tentative Christ-like obedience, some beginnings of an actual affection towards that enemy will begin. What's the practical handle that Jesus gives us here? Prayer. Pray for your enemy. That's a practical thing that you can do. Love them, pray for those who persecute you. Now you say, I don't want to do that. How do you pray for somebody you don't like? Well, let me tell you, you grit your teeth. You know, grit your teeth and pray. And God hears prayers through gritted teeth. God, I can hardly stand this person. I don't want to pray for them. I don't wish them any good with what they've done to me, but you ask me to do this. God, would you teach me to understand what's going on in that life? God, would you help me to somehow find a, a release for my own hatred, my own venom that pours back? God, would you give me an opening to say something of a peacemaking nature to that person? You pray that way every day and keep doing it. 
And you're doing essentially what Jesus did on the cross. Remember? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. They were his enemies. They nailed him there. Father, forgive them. They don't know. Could you pray for an enemy saying, Father, he doesn't even know why he's acting this way. He's acting out of ignorance. He doesn't have your spirit. Can you teach me to forgive him? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, we stand by his side, and we plead before God for him. Now, you say, I don't know how to pray without sympathizing with somebody first. No, this is prayer that has to begin by saying, God, teach me to sympathize because I don't know how yet. But I can tell you it works. It really does. On many, many occasions, there have been people where I have been overwrought with them, disgusted with them, angry in my spirit, and not knowing anything that I could do except starting to pray. And, you know, there's never been the magic light bulb moment necessarily in that. But time after time, here's what happens. I start to actually develop a little bit of compassion. And God, I think by his spirit, gives me this and says, you know, maybe he's acting that way because whatever. And I learn something, and I start to pray in that direction. And the relationship amazingly starts to turn. It happens. It may sound like a miracle to you that can never happen, but wait a minute, who are we praying to? The God of miracles. And he works when we can pray through the people we don't like. Finally, this in verse 32 of our text, Jesus said, if you only love those who love you, what credit is that to you? What's he saying there? Is he, is he saying you should love so that you can kind of get your name up in lights or earn a reward? I don't think exactly. I think he's saying, I expect a different standard from those who are my disciples. Of course, if somebody loves you, if they stroke you, if they give you benefits, if they compliment you and tell you how wonderful you are, you're going to love them. Adolf Hitler could do that without a problem. But he says, I expect something different from you. Why? Because you're new people. You are people who belong to me by the grace of the cross. You've experienced my love in that cross, and my Holy Spirit now lives in you, and he ought to be creating in you a kind of holy dissatisfaction when you merely respond to others at their level. You know, we so often talk about it even in how we drive. Somebody stupidly cuts you off or honks the horn or acts rudely, what is it? Men, I know, men, we're, we're the ones. Oh, there's something about our masculinity at risk here. And we've got to rise up and react. Why? What is proved by that? Isn't it so much better to just give way? And sure, we don't have the opportunity to pray necessarily for that stranger. But Jesus loved me when I was actively his enemy, when I was in the anti-God category, how can I possibly do any less to someone who might slap me in the face, undercut my work, malign my reputation? How can I do less than Jesus by the power in which he works in me? I said it would come back, and I, I do now, close by returning to Captain Ernest Gordon. 
the British soldier who wrote the book, To End All War. Interesting book, by the way, if you like this kind of thing. At the end of World War II, he and his fellow soldiers were liberated, of course, from that Japanese camp in Thailand. And they started out leaving there on a train on a journey that would take them back to Britain. In the early stages of that journey, they pulled into an Asian rail uh, confluence where the rail lines came together and there were a lot of sidings. And their train was stopped for a bit beside another train. And they looked across and not very far away, just the next set of tracks, was a train full of Japanese prisoners. Japanese prisoners being liberated from an American camp. And I guess, I don't know why exactly, but these, many of these men were in miserable condition. They had untended wounds. There were flies buzzing around them. They weren't washed. They hadn't eaten. It was hot in a tropical climate. They were crying out in their language for water, water. They were just as miserable a condition as they possibly could be in. Now stop and think about those British soldiers sitting on their train looking 20 feet away at another whole train of men who represented the captors, who had killed thousands of their mates, who had mistreated them day by day, who had brutalized them. Wouldn't you think that they would almost be at the windows of the train cheering? Yes, look at, they finally, they got what was coming. Well, maybe there were even some who did that. But Dusty Miller And Ernest Gordon and a small cadre of Christian soldiers looked at that situation and quietly went about their train and picked up every canteen they could find and went to the water tap in the rail yard and filled all the canteens and went to the Japanese train and washed the faces of the Japanese, gave them a drink, washed wounds as best they were able to do it, And they said there was one officer that started cursing at them and shouted, you bloody fools, those are our enemies. And Dusty Miller, the simple Christian who read his Bible and prayed, called back quietly and said, yes, we know that. That's why we're doing it. What would motivate men to do something like that except that they had been recipients of the world's greatest love? Love coming from the only place that could motivate you to act that way, the cross of Jesus Christ. And I ask you, who are the enemies in your life who the Lord might call you to love in a remarkable way that's against your nature and is completely unnatural and has to be motivated from God? Start by praying for them. And then ask God what quiet ways you might begin to act. And do what Jesus said here in the last verse of our text. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Our Father, we ask that we might be people who would live a different life. We've heard the new members say they would live their lives in a manner becoming to a Christian. Maybe they didn't know they were signing on for something like this. Maybe none of us knew that, but you've told us it today. You've told us that acting back with anger, with vengeance, we're not allowed. We're called to a different life. 
And Lord, we're only going to be able to live this life as we're constantly understanding ourselves as under that downpour of love of your own that comes from the cross. Remake us and empower us in these difficult things you ask us to do because otherwise we'll never do it. But we praise you that we can as you help us. For Jesus' sake, amen.